Well, if you're new, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of Psalms, chapter 3. Psalms, chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the Bible, take one from under the chair in front of you and go to the middle. The biggest book in the Bible is the Psalms. It's right in the middle of the Bible, and you will find our reading today beginning on page 448. Psalm, chapter 3. Well, as you notice, we are starting a new series this morning. Lord willing, we're going to spend the next six weeks considering six different psalms. Uh, I will have the privilege of preaching Psalm chapter 3, and then uh, you will get to hear from your other pastors who will preach through some other psalms. Uh, Mid-September, once this series is done, we are planning to start the book of Amos. And so that's kind of how it is teed up for the next few months. The series here is called Songs of Jesus. It's a reoccurring series that we've done a few times in the history of our church. And we've called it Songs of Jesus because the Psalms are songs. Each song is ultimately about Jesus. And some of the Psalms are songs that Jesus himself sang. The Bible tells us that the night before His crucifixion, the Lord Jesus and His disciples sang hymns together. So, these are songs of Jesus. I have the privilege of kicking off the series, and we'll consider Psalm 3 together. Here's what we're going to do. I'll read the passage. I'll pray for the Lord's help on our time together. I want to say a few words about emotions and kind of the point of this version of this series. And uh, then we will get to work in Psalm chapter 3. So if you have your Bible open, Psalm chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Let's pray. Father, You are a good God, our shield, our sustainer, the one who hears our prayers, our Savior. Would You come here today as we consider the words before us and allow us to see the beauty of Your Son, Jesus, 
Give us hearts that would be enthralled by Him as we see His majesty and His glory in print, in our eyes, in our ears, on our hearts. May the meditation of our heart, may the words of our mouth be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake we ask, amen. Singing is a command of God. Singing is a command of God. The Bible contains more than 500 references to singing and 50 direct commands to sing. So singing isn't just something that we like to do. Singing is something God has made us to do. And so when we gather on the Lord's Day, we sing, as we just did. And this isn't a stylistic preference. This is an act of obedience. God has chosen to fill His church and His heavens and indeed His creation with singing. God's people have always been a singing people. If you remember, when God delivered His people out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, the first thing they did with their newfound freedom was to sing. In the New Testament, singing is directly tied to the riches of God's Word dwelling in His people. Colossians 3 verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the Bible commands us to sing. And not only does the Bible command us to sing, the Bible provides us with songs to sing. The biggest book in the Bible, as I mentioned earlier, is the Psalms, a songbook. And in this songbook, there are victory songs, there are praise songs, there are songs of prayer, there are songs of lament. Why would you suppose that singing is so important to God? So important that He would command His people to do this thing. Well, because God, our Father, in His good and perfect wisdom, has created us as emotional beings. And in the Psalms, we encounter the embattled emotional life of the believer. The Psalms are real talk. And there we meet in the Psalms those people like us who experience emotions, sadness, loneliness, fear, anxiety, guilt, shame. The Psalms are filled with tears and the Psalms are filled with laughter. Emotions and feelings are never ignored in the Scriptures, and neither are they meant to be our guides. Author John Bloom helpfully writes, emotions are gauges, not guides. They're meant to report to you, 
not dictate to you, end quote. In other words, your emotions are gauges on the dashboard of your life telling you what's going on under the hood in your heart. Emotions reveal where your hope lies. They are driven by what you believe about God. And this is what we see in the Psalms. The embattled emotional life of the believer who is resolving his or her emotions in the immutability of God. Now, immutability might not be a word you're familiar with. It means the unchangingness of God, the changelessness of God. That in the Psalms, we find the embattled emotional believer resolving his or her emotions in the unchangeableness of God. God does not change. Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. In the book of Hebrews, we read that He is the same yesterday and today and forever. God's essence, God's nature, God's perfections don't change. Now, God expresses emotions, to be sure, but not in the same way that we do. Nothing upsets God. Nothing catches him by surprise. He is never uncertain. He is never hesitant. He is grieved, but he is never foiled. He is angered, but he is never frantic. He is jealous, but he is never insecure. God does not change. And this central reality of resolving our emotional life in the unchangeableness of our God is central in the Psalms. God is unchanged. God is unaffected by anyone and by anything. And in our afflictions, in our difficulties, in our troubles and hardships, this is something we all need to know. We often look for comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ also experienced our afflictions. And that's right and good, and we should do that. Hebrews 4 tells us, reminds us that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest, that he was tempted in every way as we are. But yet the author adds, even though he was tempted in every way we are, he was without sin. So, yes, Jesus became human like us, but also Jesus is not like us, so that Jesus could save us. He is like us, and that is a comfort to us, but the fact that He is not like us is the reason why that's a comfort to us. So, an example that helped me think about this this week. If your house were on fire, you would call the fire department, and they would send some folks to your house with some tools to enter the fire and to stop the fire. 
And it would be of no comfort to you if a fireman showed up, saw that your house was on fire, then left and went home to his house and set it on fire and came back so that he could comfort you because he knows what it's like to have a house on fire. And so we pray to a God who can enter the fire, who is not burned by the fire, but in the fire can put the fire out. There's no comfort in calling upon a God who changes or who is fickle or who is unpredictable. The Psalms teach us to take our emotions to the unchangeable truths of our unchangeable God. And this is a lesson that I trust we will see over and over again in the Psalms, starting here in Psalm 3. So here's the big idea this morning from Psalm chapter 3. The Lord is your shield, the Lord is your sustainer, and the Lord is your Savior. Turn to Him and sleep well. The Lord is your shield, your sustainer, and your Savior. Turn to Him and sleep well. I have titled the sermon this morning, The Secret to Good Sleep. Anyone down with that? The Secret to Good Sleep. So we'll consider three ways the Lord has revealed Himself to us in this psalm and the restful effects of each on our lives. So the first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 is that the Lord, 1 through 4, is that the Lord is our shield. So let's read 1 to 4 again. The psalmist writes, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill, Selah. Now, if you have a Bible in front of you, some of the Psalms have a superscript. They have a little writing above the first verse, and that is a short summary about what the Psalm, kind of the occasion of the Psalm, or what kind of Psalm it is, the purpose behind it. You can see that in, in, in Psalm 3, and here we're told that this psalm was written by King David during a time when he fled from his son Absalom. Now, we considered the story of David and Absalom back in January, so it should be fresh in your mind. David is the rightful king in Israel, and his son Absalom led a revolt against his father. Absalom was a handsome man, a winsome man, and he wooed the people to himself and set them against their king. And then he led them in a revolt against David. David, in response, fled the city, fled the palace, and Absalom came in and desecrated David's home and took the throne away from his father. But then when Absalom went into battle against David's army, Absalom was killed. This psalm came about through David's experience of that great tragedy in his life, which, if you remember, was largely due to his own negligence. There are many things in this psalm which are instructive to us. The first I would like you to notice is how the psalm begins in verse 1. The psalm begins with God's name. 
with God's name, Yahweh. Anytime you see in your Bible the word LORD appearing in all caps, that is the divine name of God, Yahweh. And that word Yahweh appears six times in the eight verses of this psalm. And so if you get nothing else from this message, get this, in your affliction and hardship and difficulty, turn to your Lord. Christian, turning to God ought to be instinctual, like a flinch, the muscle memory of your soul. In your hardship and confusion and frustration, turn to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And all in that verse means all. All your anxieties. It's instinct. It's flinching. It's the muscle memory of your soul. That's what David does. Oh, Lord. And then he tells the Lord the problem. Many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying there's no salvation for him in God. Remember, David's oppressors in this psalm are coming from within his own family, from his own countrymen. Absalom had set David's own people against him. He had convinced the nation that he was on God's side and that David was on the outs with God. And the king is backed into a corner and his country is on the verge of civil war. And what does he do? He reminds himself of the character and nature of God. He says, the Lord is my shield. Now, a quick note. You can see there in, at the end of verse 2, there's the word Selah. Often in your Bibles, it's off to the side or it's italicized. Selah is a Hebrew word, and actually no one really knows what it means. Translators have just decided to keep the word transliterated from Hebrew. Most scholars think that it is a musical term, which means like pause and reflect, sort of like the fermata if you're, if you're familiar with musical terms. So in verse 1 and 2, David outlines the conflict. And in verse 3, you see his resolve. You see the emotion. Many are rising against me. And you see the resolve. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. So in conflict, when emotions are high, run with all of your might to your unchangeable God. The Lord is a shield. What does a shield do? A shield absorbs attack and protects those behind it. The Lord is David's shield all around. The Lord is before him. The Lord is behind him. And the Lord is at his side. Many are they who arise against me. They come from all around, but the Lord is my shield from all around. Whatever attack is leveled against the king, from wherever it comes, the Lord is his shield. The Lord will take the blow, absorb the hit, and keep his servant safe. So the Lord is a shield. Then he says, the Lord is my glory and the lifter of my head. The king's reputation had been smeared by his son, but the king's reputation is safe with his God. 
His honor, His dignity, His glory comes from the Lord. What God says about David is what matters to David. He doesn't have to work for his reputation or fight for his reputation or even maintain his reputation. Who he is is who God says he is. And then as much as we are concerned with the applause of man, we will always be concerned with the applause of man. We will always be chasing the applause of man because man is fickle. But what God says is true. And it is always true. David knew that God would lift his head. In an honor culture where kings displayed their power and might by dominating others, David, in this conflict, left the city for the wilderness. He wouldn't defend his throne from his own son. After all, it was God who put him there. And if it was God's will that he would stay there, then God would keep him there. And how did David know that the Lord would deliver him from Absalom? How did he know that he wouldn't just get chased down in the wilderness and die and lose the kingdom? He didn't know. But here's what he did know. I cried to the Lord and he answered me. He heard me from his holy hill. Although there is infinite distance between creator and creation, it is our Father's good pleasure to condescend the infinite distance and to hear the cries of His people. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So on the basis of who God is in verse 3, we have verse 4. David cries to the Lord because he knows the Lord answers. Because God is his shield. Because God hears those who cry to him. And so we pray. We pray because our God is immutable and unchangeable. Now some have wondered if if God knows all things, if God has decreed all things according to His unchanging will, then why would anyone pray? And I understand the question, but the more that you understand the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God, far from discouraging prayer, it actually braces our prayer. We pray for change in our circumstances to a God who is unchanged by circumstances. We pray because our unchanging God has decreed both the way and the end. The means and the end. Our prayers don't change God's will, but instead it is His will to use our prayers to bring about His will. And so David cried to the Lord, and the Lord answered. And in that, our brother is instructive. We also, in conflict, must cry to the Lord. When our foes surround, when we begin questioning whether God is our salvation, we cry aloud to the Lord. And we trust 
Through Christ, he hears us. Make your requests known to God. In affliction, hide yourself behind your Lord, who is your shield. The next thing David teaches us about the character and nature of God is that he is our sustainer. The Lord is our shield, and the Lord is our sustainer. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. I lay down and slept. I don't know if you write in your Bibles. I don't know if you highlight in your Bibles. But if you do, underline that thing. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. The Lord is our sustainer. There is good theology in sleep. If you sleep well, you're doing good theology. Sleeping is something only created things do. It is a result of our creatureliness that we must sleep. It is the inevitable consequence of our limitation. And so we will spend a full third of our lives turned off, shut down, asleep. God is not like this. God does not sleep. Psalm 121 says, He who keeps you, He who sustains you, will not slumber. You will never find your God falling asleep at the wheel of your life. The Lord never grows tired. He never grows weary. He never grows bored. He is always acting, always doing, always pouring Himself out, and He never runs out of pouring Himself out. If you've ever flown in an airplane and they fly up above on like a cloudy day, they fly above the clouds, have you ever looked down and saw the clouds from above? It's fantastic. The light of the sun dancing on these moving shapes with all of these magnificent colors, it's amazing. First time I saw it, it was amazing. I'll never forget it. And it only recently occurred to me that humans have appreciated the beauty of looking down on the clouds for only a tiny sliver of our history. But since the very beginning, God has been making that beauty above the clouds and no one was able to see it but Him. And then it occurred to me that in this huge known universe, almost everything God makes, no one is around to appreciate but Him. And He never gets tired of making it. And he never gets tired of doing it. Colossians 1 says that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. And that in Jesus, everything is held together. So using a billion processes that no one truly understands but him, he creates beauty that no one fully enjoys but Him in His sustaining of all things. And He's been doing this since time began. And He's been doing this in two trillion galaxies since time began. And He's never once got bored and never once got tired of doing it. And this is an important fact to remember when you're in conflict and your emotions are high. Because when many are my foes, many are my fears. Big is my situation, little is my God. 
But here the psalmist helps us. In the midst of affliction and conflict, David says, that's who he is. I'm going to bed. I lay me down and I slept. And I wonder if later someone were to ask the king, King, how did you get through that time in your life where you had so many enemies chasing you all over the wilderness like a dog? I wonder if he were to say something like, well, I just, I prayed and then I slept and the Lord sustained me. And I'll admit, verse 5 is the hardest verse for me in this psalm. I don't sleep well. I'm not good at it. It's pride, no doubt. But David says, when I was afflicted, I cried to God, and then I went, then I went to bed. I lay down and slept, and then I woke up, for the Lord sustained me. So here is the secret to good sleep. Faith-filled prayer. Faith-filled prayer. On your bed, Cornerstone, humble yourself. Turn your concerns over to Him and sleep. He's going to be up anyway. Sleeping is an act of faith. It is a humble acknowledgement. You can't create yourself. You can't sustain yourself. You are wholly and fully dependent on another. And you must entrust your life, your tomorrow, to the only one who's in charge of tomorrow. The Christian who believes in the providence of God rests well, and she plays hard. She knows that she can't sustain herself. She takes no credit for the good that God is doing in her life. She knows it is all of grace. She rests in the comfort that He is her shield, that He is her sustainer. Will she have enough to do what is asked of her tomorrow? Probably not. But that doesn't matter to her because God is her sustainer and He will have enough. She does not fear her past. She's been united to Christ by faith, cleansed of her unrighteousness. She does not fear her present. The Lord is with her. And so she can sing with the psalmist, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Nor does she fear her future because God is infinite in time. He's there too. Her future is in His hands. Will there be afflictions tomorrow? No doubt there will be afflictions tomorrow. And perhaps her Lord will deliver her out of that affliction in order to show His glory. Or perhaps He will give grace to her to endure those afflictions to show His glory. Either way, her life is in His hands. He gave His own Son to save her soul. And so He may spend her life however He chooses. And He can do her no wrong. And so anxieties and fears, these emotions, they are God-given gauges to reveal the source of our hope and confidence. And if we are hoping in ourselves, we'll never get away from anxiety and fear. But if we are hoping in the Lord, 
We will have peace. We will sleep well. After all, what did Jesus tell us? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. When we believe God is our hope, we will lay down and sleep instead of striving. When we believe that God is our hope, we will lay down and sleep instead of tossing and turning and burning the midnight oil because the Lord is our sustainer. The Lord is our shield. The Lord is our sustainer. Next we read, the Lord is our Savior. Let's have a look at verse 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord, David says, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So here the king calls upon his God to act. He says, arise, Lord, take care of my enemy, deliver me. If you remember back to the story of David fleeing from Absalom, he was met with another man, another opponent, as he was leaving the city, a man named Shimei. Do you remember him? And Shimei didn't care for David. And Shimei, while David was leaving the city, was adding insult to injury, was just cursing David and throwing sticks and rocks at him. And although it was in David's power to kill that man, he told his servants not to. He told them to leave Shimei alone. Because after all, the Lord is his defender. And so David prays here for deliverance, that the Lord would deliver him. And it's not wrong to pray for healing. It's not wrong to pray for deliverance from your affliction. It's right to pray for those things. We have many enemies, but we have a mighty God, and we must call upon him to save his people. He has delivered us. He will deliver us again. He is our peace. And while it is our tendency in conflict to take matters into our own hands, faith dictates that those matters are best left in God's hands. And that's where we leave them. And we pray that God would fix it. And it may surprise you, as it surprised me to learn in studying the whole armor of God passage in Ephesians chapter 6, that that passage is about defense, not offense. And while I'm geared up to go charging the gates of hell, Paul is telling us to put on the whole armor of God and then do what? Stand! The kingdom of God will advance, but not by the force of human will, but by the power of God's Holy Spirit. So those of you who have been tracking with us in the one-year Bible reading plan, I think it was Tuesday, we read from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, God's king, Jehoshaphat, was told this, you do not need to fight in this battle, stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. The Lord is our Savior. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So years ago, Pastor Brent and Jane bought me a gift for Christmas, a sign that hangs in my office with a quote from Exodus 14, 14, the Lord himself will fight for you. 
You need only to be still. And that sign has been a comfort to me over the years. The Lord is our Savior. When the credits roll in the movie of your life, every line is going to say, God, director, God, producer, God, executive producer, God, visual effects, God, writer, God. The Lord is your Savior. And so if you're here today as a, as a guest with us, I'm glad you're here. If you're not a Christian, you pick the perfect day to come to church. God wants you to know two things. Number one, you need saving. And number two, you have a Savior. I spoke with a man this week who told me, God doesn't love me. I'm a monster. I'm not worthy of His love. And so I'll tell you, dear non-Christian, what I told him. Two of those three statements are exactly right. One is a lie. By your sin, you are a monster. And by your sin, you do not deserve His love. But the third is a lie. God does love you. And God demonstrated His love for you in this way. He sent His own Son to die on the cross in your place for your sin. That when you turn to Him in faith, believing in Him, God will save you, cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness, unite you to Christ. All of your sin goes on Him. All of His good deeds and blessing goes on you. And you are granted eternal life. Despite what you've done and not done, despite how unworthy you have made yourself, God has set His love on sinners just like you. Which means anyone can get in on this. And this is what the psalm has been saying. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the one who saves. You can't save yourself from your own sin. You are under God's wrath. But when you turn to Jesus Christ, confessing that sin, He is faithful to forgive you. And that is the story of everyone here. Trust in Jesus Christ and tell someone. We've all been where you are. And it would be an honor to every one of us to help you in this new life of freedom in Christ. Psalm chapter 3 is a song about Jesus. Here we see in this psalm the enemy of man rising against man, calling into question the salvation of his God. And here in this psalm we see the salvation of his God and the glorious effects thereof. God, who did not spare His own Son, but graciously gave Him up for us all, is giving us the unmerited blessing that He earned by His perfect life. You see, the Lord did arise out of verse 7. He struck down the great enemy of man, sin and death. Jesus climbed the hill of Calvary, offering Himself as a sacrifice for sinful man. The enemy laid claim, rightful claim, claim upon the sinner, justly 
thrusting the spear at each one of us, but it missed us. It pierced the body of the Lord Jesus who stood between us as our shield, and His lifeless body was laid in a tomb, but He rose again on the third day, climbing out of the grave, dealing a mortal blow to the devil and to sin. He broke the teeth of the wicked one. Death lost this battle. Jesus won this battle. Salvation is from the Lord. And then what is left for us? Well, what does verse 8 say? Your blessing. Your blessing be upon your people. Cornerstone, your sin fell upon your Savior so that His blessings would fall upon you. That's the gospel. That's the seedbed of the emotional life of the believer. That's the resolve we always turn to when emotions run high. That God is our shield. That God is our sustainer. That God is our Savior. Turn to Him. And tonight, sleep like a baby. Let's pray. Father, we confess to You our pride that we have acted in our own strength, as our own shield, as our own sustainer, as even our own Savior. That so many times in our lives we have not acted in faith. We've trusted more in what we see than in what you say. And we've given in to fear and anxiety. Believing more in our ability than in your providence. And in this we have sinned. And so, Lord, we confess that we have not trust you. We have seized control of our life because uh, we just don't trust you'll do it right. Will you forgive us? Thank you for the kindness of the sting of this word today. We know it is a kindness. We know that when you undress us with your word, it is so that you will clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. Father, send your spirit to us. And give us grace to trust you. Give us grace to walk slower, to breathe deeper. Open our eyes to the beauty that you are creating all around us. And let us see the wonderful providence of your sustaining power in our lives. Give us faith to trust you, the unchangeable one. Would you enable us to read the dashboard of our lives this week and to trace our emotions back to our unchangeable God? and to anchor our souls into who you are, into what you've done, and what you've said. Because we know there we are safe, there we are at peace, and there we will rest in perfect sleep. For Jesus, all things we ask for Jesus. Amen. Well, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the confession of your sin, you have an assurance of pardon from 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. John writes, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake.